Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Schumer. Dr. Schumer is a pediatric endocrinologist at Michigan Medicine and the clinical director of the Child and Adolescent Gender Clinic at Mott Children's Hospital. He did medical school at Northwestern University, pediatric residency at the University of Vermont, and completed his fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. He is the proud parent of a three-year-old son named Charlie. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Schumer. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Doing great. It's great to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I really appreciate your time. This is a super important topic and I think tricky for a lot of us. So I really appreciate your insights on this. So I just thought we'd get started right away and... You run a clinic that specializes in treating transgender youth, and how did you get started in that, and are there other clinics like this in other places? You're at the University of Michigan. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I, was, when I was in my pediatric endocrine fellowship in Boston, I was working under um, a man named Dr. Norman Spack, who I consider sort of the, the godfather of pediatric gender clinics in our country. Dr. Spack actually took some time to go to Amsterdam to learn what they were doing in the Netherlands about 25 years ago. He brought those lessons back to Boston and opened a clinic called GEMS, the Gender Management Services Clinic, which was sort of the first multidisciplinary gender clinic for kids in the U.S. And when I was, when I was there with, with him, I got inspired by him. Uh, and I just remember seeing the first referral with him that I was able to see, which was a a family that had come from the Adirondack Mountain region of upstate New York, a mom, a dad, and their eight-year-old who was born male, but identified as a girl. And she entered the room presenting as a girl with her dress and her hair and a bow. And as as I was watching the parents sit down, I couldn't help but notice that they looked really anxious. And they also almost looked like they were somewhat ashamed to be there. And as they started talking, they were sharing with me that they had always felt like something was different about their child. At first, they thought that maybe they had a son that would grow up to be gay. But then as more time went by in elementary school, their, their, their child started really struggling and was saying things like, you know, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. And they didn't really know what to do with that. They talked to their pediatrician. They started considering using a name that she chose and using she, her pronouns. And as they started to be more open and supportive, they saw that their child was starting to blossom and flourish. And they were still really scared though about what the future meant for their child and what their small town was saying, what people at their church were saying, what people at the school were saying about them. And they didn't know where to go next. And So they decided to come meet with Dr. Spack. And I just remember Dr. Spack sitting down with them and saying, you know, I have 
seen hundreds of kids with something in common with your child, that they're, they have a difference in their gender identity, and that you know your child is prepubertal, so there's no medical intervention needed right now, and that we can't predict the future, but that if your child's gender identity persists, there are things that we can do to help, and that I've seen many, many young kids that are now young adults that are living happy, healthy, successful lives, and more important than any medicine that I would prescribe is just your questionable, unwavering love and support for your child. And as uh, Dr. Speck was talking, I was watching the parents and that anxiety and shame was melting away and it was being replaced by love and hope and pride. And I feel like they left that visit with a lot of hope for the future and knowing that things could be okay. And the thing that really struck me was that at that visit, there was no labs ordered, no medicines prescribed. It was just sort of meeting parents where they were at, providing some reassurance. But it was also the most powerful medical encounter that I'd been a part of. And it got me inspired to sort of do that work as well. And at the time, there was no pediatric gender clinic in Michigan. And really over the past five to 10 years, pediatric gender clinics have really grown and emerged at most children's hospitals across the country now, because we're seeing such an increase in, in the youngest generation, thinking more critically about gender identity, feeling safe to come out and talk about their gender identity, and, and maybe less concerned that they're going to be rejected by society or their family. And a real emergence of a need for um, for pediatric gender clinics all across the country, including in our home state here. That's such a lovely story. I mean, it is so, it's just such a sweet story. And I think that's kind of what pediatricians do best is listening to parents, reassuring. I mean, that's a lot of what we do is reassurance. And I've certainly seen more and more patients in my clinic. I can think of a young child who very much like the child that you described and the parents coming to me with their child who was born male, but then identified as female. And the parents were just so compassionate and so willing. And I think a little bit relieved that, not that I knew a whole lot, but that I was just willing to kind of go with the flow. And, um, you know, we were able to use um, the name that the child preferred. I know a lot of parents are wondering if this is just trendy because we are seeing more and more of these kids. I mean, are there really more, more transgender individuals? Is it a trend or what do you think about that? Well, there certainly are more people that are presenting for care um, than there were 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, I think that if I could just reflect for a moment on let's think about my grandparents when they were in high school and um, whether they would have known anyone or cared about someone or loved someone that was gay or lesbian. And they probably would have said, no, not really. And it's hard for me to wrap my head around how that could be. How could someone love someone of the same sex? I think nowadays in, in our country, most people know someone, love someone, care about someone who's gay or lesbian. So having a difference in sexual orientation is no longer so mysterious. And when someone is feeling a difference in sexual orientation, they're more apt to come forward and talk about it and feel safe to express that. And, um, and so the, you know, the 
the percentage of people who are gay and lesbian are, is now much higher than it was when my grandparents were in high school. You know, I think if you ask the average person in the United States, if they know someone, love someone, care about someone who's transgender, they might say, mm, no, not really. It's hard for me to wrap my head around how that could be. Um, but I think that's now starting to change too, as people are maybe becoming more exposed to someone in their life who has a difference in gender identity. The mystery behind how that could be can can go away uh, when you're able to put a face with the with the phenomenon. And that's why I also love bringing some of my patients with me when I speak, um, because their story is much more powerful than even how I could describe it. So I think that on the one hand, there's there's probably a greater willingness for young people to come forward and talk about a difference in gender identity because they're feeling more safe to do so. Um, maybe they in their school have met someone who their experience resonates with how they feel, whereas maybe 20 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to um, put words with what they were feeling. And also, I, I think it's, it's important to point out that not every adolescent or child that feels some difference in gender identity is going to make a gender transition and be on medication. You know, I think that there's there's a difference between having a difference in gender identity or exploring gender identity and having gender dysphoria, um, which implies that there's some, you know, deep distress about the disconnect between gender identity and the body, um, which may require an intervention. So, you know, exploring gender identity, exploring sexual orientation, I feel like these are tasks of adolescence and the exploration um, is, is normal um, that, um, that the patients that typically end up coming um, all the way to gender clinic may have been experiencing something more profound um, with, with some actual um, negative mental health consequences of this disconnect between their gender identity and, and their body. Well, and one of the things that, oops, sorry, I'm getting some feedback. One of the things that I wondered about is um, parents who may be angry or sad and grieving. I know you have a social worker that works with you in your clinic. How do you, how do you help parents? I mean, you've said a little bit about being, just being open and maybe some time that this isn't an emergency to declare one way or the other, but what, how do you help parents deflect that anger or grief? I think that's a really good question. And I think that the, one of the things that we, we talk a lot about is meeting pa- parents and families where they're at, that there, there's, no, there's no right or wrong way to feel inside, but there are some things that parents can do to, to show that they love and support their kid, even if they're having some internal conflict about it. So I think that we meet parents where they're at, validate their feelings that, yes, this can be very hard, that as a parent, even before our child is born, we're starting to paint a picture of what their future life is going to look like. And, and then our child, because he's a toddler, becomes a, uh, you know, a talking, interactive person and starts sharing with us about who they are. And some of those disclosures force us to change the picture in our brain about the future of our child. So if I'm picturing that my child's going to grow up and be a hockey player, but then he likes basketball a lot more than hockey, I have to change the picture in my head about who my child is. And I might, for a time, grieve the fact that I'm not raising a hockey player. Now, that that seems a lot different than, than a disclosure about gender identity. But I, I think the point is that when our 
child starts telling us who they are and uh, and we start altering how that picture looks in our head, that grief is probably a normal parent response. And then what do we do with that feeling? I think that what we try to, to do in clinic is provide some psychoeducation about how children who perceive rejection are at much higher rates of real life consequences, such as increased depression, anxiety, suicidality, substance use, STI, than young people who perceive acceptance. And so the that if there is perceived rejection from a child from their parents, that that can have real life health consequences. And that regardless of, of what's going on with the parents grieving process, trying to uh, to portray love and acceptance to your child as you're dealing with whatever feelings you're, you're going through can be really important for their long-term health. And, and sometimes the, the love that a parent has for their child um, and the knowledge that their perceived acceptance or rejection can actually have real life impacts on their child's health um, can move a, a parent closer to acceptance from rejection. And, and so sometimes we, we, as we meet parents where they're at, and then maybe they come back three, six months later, we can see that there's been a change in the acceptance of, of something that, you know, they don't have a lot of control over, but they do have control over their reaction and their perceived acceptance or rejection to their child. Sounds like we need to be open to who our kids are. Uh, you must be a great dad. Uh, it's just so nice that you're willing to maybe not paint your your child into a corner. And I, right. I, you're right. I think we all have ideas about what we want our kids to to do, to be, who they're going to marry or not marry, or they're going to have children. And maybe this isn't any different. It's just, you know, a little twist on it. You mentioned something pretty important, and I think that's the risk of suicide for transgender youth and how much higher it is than their cis peers. Is this something that we should be screening for differently, more often? You know, I think that that attention to comorbid mental health issues is really important in someone that's having a difference in sexual orientation or gender identity, just because we know that the LGBTQ community is um, encumbered by more of this risk. But I also wanted to, to point out that that risk is not inevitable, that there is, there's a really nice study in pediatrics a couple of years ago that pointed out that um, that kids that had the most acceptance and were totally accepted and, and had made a social transition and were per, had perceived acceptance in their home, in their school, and in, in their community had equal levels of anxiety and depression compared to uh, cisgender age match peers. And um, and so I think the powerful statement there is that that those really bleak statistics that we hear all the time are not inevitable and that we can bend the needle by surrounding a child with love. So that means us too. Mm -hmm. So a practical question, how do we identify or communicate to others, you know, our colleagues, you know, maybe some specialists that we refer to, you know, maybe we're sending them to a dermatologist. How do we communicate that to our colleagues and chart in a way that is appropriate? You know, do we use the diagnosis gender dysphoria and the problem list? I mean, how, how do we do that? You know, I, I'm always 
very attuned to trying to use a patient's preferred name and preferred pronouns, especially in charting as well. Um, that if if you're feeling like you need to use the the legal name for for billing or documentation reasons, I think that's fine. But I start my notes with something like, "It was a pleasure to see Jane Smith, whose legal name is John Smith. She is a biologic male with female firm gender identity and." I'm using she, her pronouns in this documentation because these are the pronouns preferred by the patient. And sort of just getting that out of the way right up front. And now we're, we know who we're talking about. We have, um, we're being uh, attentive to the, the name and pronouns that are being used by the patient, but we're also, you know, providing some medical information in that statement. You know, I think depending on your EMR, there are ways to, um, to, you know, have, preferred name and pronouns very prominently displayed at the top of the header. And, and also, you know, if a patient hasn't legally changed their name, um, that prescriptions still go under the legal name that, that, because that's the name that the insurance company is using. So, but, but just prominently pointing out what, what name a patient is using pronouns they're using. And I think that if as a pediatrician, we're, we're using that documentation as well, it is a message to colleagues like that dermatologist that may not have as much experience that, hey, maybe when I write my note, I should be doing the same thing. And when I'm seeing this patient, you know, these are the the, the ways that the medical assistant should be calling them back to see me. You know, I think that transgender people have been resistant to receiving medical care. There's statistics about how trans community is uh, can be more sick before they go to the ER that they may or participate in primary care less frequently. And I think a lot of that is historical fear of how they're going to be treated at the doctor's office, whether they're going to be misgendered or misnamed, whether they're going to feel like they're teaching their doctor about them rather than the other way around. And so I think even the person that checks the patient in can be a, a make it or break it moment for that patient and their comfort with the office, putting a safe space sticker at the front desk. Um, you know, little things like that can be a strong signal to someone that, you know what, this is a safe place to be. I just reflect on the, the when I formed the pediatric gender clinic at U of M, you know, I, I was like, I'm doing a great job. I trained my staff, the nurses and MAs, they're all on board. They've got some education. And and then I started seeing people in return visits and one of my patients, you know, I said, all right, we're going to repeat your labs today. And, and he said, oh, I don't really want to get my labs done here. The phlebotomist misgendered me and it was really upsetting. And I said, ah, I forgot about the phlebotomists. I forgot about the radiologists. You know, if we're going to do this right, it's really, you know, 25,000 people in our health system that need to be on the same page. And how do we do that? Um, that's a big task. So, um, so uh, you know, surround. So, I, I guess as we've started talking about how parents and families can be supportive, it also is the health system that needs to be supportive if we want these patients to come back and see us and, and stay healthy. So, for example, if I was going to refer a child to you and I have to link it to a certain diagnosis, are there diagnoses that can pertain that are maybe less? disordery than dysphoria? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there's been a lot of, of thought around this question because initially, um, you know, in the previous iteration of the DSM, 
um, gender dysphoria was called gender identity disorder. And I think that the, the change occurred because we're not so much talking about a disorder in gender identity. Gender identity is a normal human characteristic and having a difference in gender identity compared to your biologic sex itself is not a medical problem or a mental health problem. I think the word gender dysphoria came out of a desire to say, you know, it's because of a difference in gender identity that there's distress. And so I think gender dysphoria is a better term than gender identity disorder. And I think that even in other iterations of the DSM, we might have new terminology like gender incongruence is being discussed. You know, I, I also recognize that not everyone that has a difference in gender identity has gender dysphoria. And so sometimes when our social worker is seeing someone and they don't feel like gender dysphoria really captures what the patient is experiencing, maybe just exploration of gender identity. They might use adjustment disorder. Um, you know, something that I um, sometimes use is sort of a throwaway um, diagnosis, endocrine disorder, NOS. And, um, you know, I think what we're trying, what I'm trying to do is, is not label someone with a mental health condition if they don't have one. And also respecting the fact that that gender exploration is a normal process um, and doesn't necessarily need to be pathologized. Yeah, I like that gender exploration or something else could be used. But yeah, adjustment disorder is a really good uh, diagnosis for a lot of things when we really can't pinpoint where we want to go. I, I love the way that this conversation is going. You know, I have a list of questions and it just flows. You're you're touching all the things that I wanted to talk about. I was going to ask you, are there any toolkits, webinars? You know, I mean, this whole um, topic is, I mean, it's a fellowship. It's, you know, it's more than just a conversation, but how how do we educate ourselves? Are there some resources? One of my favorite resources is um, an online resource through UCSF. Um, they have um, published um, uh, guidelines for, for the care of, of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals. Um, it's readily accessible online. Um, if, you, if you search for UCSF transgender guidelines, it'll pop right up. And there's really great chapters on almost anything that you could want to learn more about, whether it's working with kids and um, uh, or feminizing hormonal care or masculinizing hormonal care or, you know, screening um, cardiovascular disease in transgender individuals or STI screening, you know, it's, it's a really great sort of handbook for primary care and even subspecialists. Um, of course, there's also um, information from uh, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Um, they have um, published their their standards of care, which are also available free online. And, and also WPATH as an organization often offers trainings um, that someone could sign up for. And, and then there's, um, there's a really good article um, that is one of my favorites by Stephen Rosenthal, who's the, the pediatric endocrinologist at UCSF called Endocrine Management of uh, Transgender Adolescent, I believe. And that kind of goes through in a lot of detail, a lot of the work that we do. So if you're going to start one place, I would, I would check out the UCSF online guidance. And for listeners, I'll make sure I put the links in the show notes for that as well. 
there was something I was going to ask you. Oh, of course. Um, this again is a huge topic and maybe you can just touch a little bit on um, some of the things that you actually do as far as treatment, timing, hormones, you know, any of the other transitioning things, surgeries. Are there just some kind of things you could touch on about that? Absolutely. You know, I, um, at, when we started talking, I was, I was mentioning how Dr. Spack went over to Amsterdam to learn about, about what they were doing. And so I like to sort of go back in time and think about what the Dutch doctors were thinking when they were kind of making their, what they called the Dutch model at the time. Um, they were thinking about how being a trans adolescent and going through puberty is really challenging. And in talking to trans adults, they, they were learning that yeah, adolescence was a time that was challenging, not only because the body was changing in a way that was distressing to the individual, but also those secondary sex characteristics that that developed made it much harder for them as adults because there were things about their body that that they really didn't like or they were spending a lot of time trying to hide or change. And so they said, aha, why don't we just intervene when kids are really young, like at, at the start of puberty? But then they said, gosh, interventions that have some permanent impact on the body are probably something that we want to avoid when a child's at the beginning of puberty because puberty starts when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. And so they felt like they were in a conflict where they would like to intervene at that age, but at the same time, didn't feel ethically um, comfortable with that idea. So they said, how do we resolve this conflict? And they thought, well, we do have medications that we we know how to use for kids with precocious puberty to put puberty on pause, um, namely the GnRH analogs. What if we applied those same medications to this different patient population so that when a child was at the beginning of puberty, we could pause puberty and allow for more time for uh, maturation, emotional maturation and growth before making permanent decisions about a hormonal transition. So they also were thinking that, you know, a child that is prepubertal wouldn't need any medical intervention and it wouldn't be appropriate because they also felt like that early puberty, 10 or stage two and three, that was a time when as the child is sort of seeing changes happening to their body, a couple of different things might happen. One is that their gender dysphoria might be exacerbated by those changes. And the other would be maybe their gender dysphoria might dissipate. And if it exacerbated during the beginning of puberty, they felt like that was a helpful diagnostic tool to say this person has persistent worsening gender dysphoria as we're seeing puberty start, that might help us to predict that their gender dysphoria will persist into later adolescence and adulthood. So they were in in part using early puberty as a diagnostic time, and that if gender dysphoria persisted and exacerbated at that pattern stage two, three time, then that would be a, a good candidate, perhaps, for the GNRH analog treatment. And then they would use that to suppress puberty until the child was older. They used age 16 at the time because that was the age of consent in the Netherlands. And then they would consider surgical intervention at age 18. And that sort of framework became the Dutch model. I think if you sort of fast forward time and, and, and think about what we do today, we use a lot of those basic ideas that if a child that's early puberty, Tanner stage two, would be a candidate for GnRH analogs. 
age 16 is not the age of consent. And there's also, you know, some concern about someone suppressing puberty for six, seven years um, and what that could potentially do to bone density. And so in most pediatric gender clinics in our country today, we're thinking about GnRH analogs at Tanner stage two, and then thinking about testosterone or estrogen but the age of that's of that being offered is is more of an individual patient and family discussion. So that there are some patients that seem like excellent candidates for that before age sixteen, and others that were were waiting that long before making a decision because things are less clear. I think the other big difference between now and then is that you know I think they were describing most of their patients presenting prepubertal or at the beginning of puberty, but in actuality in our gender clinic and in others across the country, the majority of kids are coming later, maybe high school aged once puberty's already kind of happened. And so for for older kids, we're not so much thinking about the GRH analogs, that ship has sailed. We're thinking about um, you know, the testosterone or estrogen. And and so I think that the the third big difference is that I think our youngest generation is thinking about gender identity differently. People were 25 years ago, more of a spectrum. So we have patients coming in and saying, you know, I don't think either boy or girl really fits me. I, I feel like I'm somewhere else on a gender spectrum. Maybe I call myself non-binary or or somewhere else. And um, and we don't have a lot of guidance about how to help someone in that situation. So what we do is we think about each individual patient and have these, these tools in our toolkit that the Dutch taught us, and then figure out if any of those tools is appropriate for each individual person based on their experience with gender and their experience with any distress that they're feeling about their gender identity and their body. For the most part, pediatric patients with differences in gender identity are being seen by someone that has some sort of infrastructure in place with mental health professional, sort of a multidisciplinary approach. I think on the adult side, there's some shifting where um, some family medicine doctors or or internal medicine doctors um, are feeling more comfortable treating adults um, uh, using more of an informed consent model, um, feeling like an adult person is able to um, uh, you know learn the risks and benefits of an intervention and make a decision with their doctor. So we do have even at U of M family medicine doctors that are equipped to to help adults transition. But I think in pediatrics, it's a little more complicated because the patient isn't providing consent, they're providing assent, and that um, you know the, the process of adolescence and all of the exploration that happens, you know, I think it, to me, really helpful to have a multidisciplinary approach um, with some wraparound support um, from mental health professionals that can, that can work with me, a non-mental health professional. Um, to make sure that what we're doing is appropriate and that the patients are are supported. I'm wondering now with the world of Zoom, if our colleagues that are in really remote areas are going to be able to have access to people like you. And although you're not a mental health professional, I think you underestimate the impact that you would probably have on emotional mental health because you're so compassionate and passionate about this. We certainly um, are seeing a lot more patients virtually these days, and and I think also this has been a, one of the silver linings about this pandemic has been our mental health professionals also being able to do that. I we have some people from far flung places in our state that feel like they don't have 
access to mental health professionals with a lot of experience in gender identity. And we're able to connect them oftentimes with someone that we know locally that is doing virtual visits um, and sort of can expand the options for some patients um, to get connected with people that can help. I think you're absolutely right about some of these new opportunities. I was just having a conversation with a physician um, from an urban area, and we were talking about sort of the dearth of therapists of color. And, you know, again, I think with these kinds of needs, this whole tele is a just a whole nother world for mm-hmm. that. In closing, I just want to, I think the, what I hear you say is that compassion is the first step in all of this. And that what we say to our patients and our parents has this enormous power to hurt or to heal. And that I think we, we need to be better. What, what final parting thoughts do you have for our colleagues that are listening? You know, I think that you expressed that really well. You know, I think that, um, that the message that I wanted to, to have people take away is that, you know, gender identity is a human characteristic. Everybody has a gender identity. I do, you do, our patients do, and their parents do. That when there is a difference in gender identity uh, compared to the sex assigned at birth, that itself is is not a mental health problem. But but that patients that do suffer from distress between their based on the fact that there is a difference in gender identity and and their body may benefit and may, may benefit sometimes pretty dramatically from medical intervention and mental health intervention, and that uh, starting from compassion is definitely step one. Um, and then figuring out if, if the patient needs an assessment or, or potentially a medical intervention, I think, and knowing what your options are where you are can save a life. The problem doesn't seem to be the children. It's perhaps the problem is, is us. And that if we can do better, it benefits our patients. I was thinking, not that these are equivalent, but, you know, a child with autism or a child with Down syndrome, that the parent is often struggling with that diagnosis or that way of being for that child. And we embrace that and think of what do we do to support these children so that their lives are healthy, productive, successful, and this is no different in that we love all children and we want them to be well. I mean, that's our job as pediatricians. I think that's really well said. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, you're just such a compassionate human being. I, you know, it's just very comforting talking to you. I, you must be a real gift to your patients and your parents who it, I would think just such a sigh of relief, like somebody hears me and isn't judging me or making me feel bad about myself. And that that's a quite a gift that you have. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. What an amazing and compassionate physician. I just felt in talking to him the kindness and relief and hope. And honestly, it almost brought me to tears. There are several important takeaways. The first being that we are all born with gender identities and that some do not conform with our biologic gender. It is our job as pediatricians to decrease the distress in children, to listen, and to accept another's reality. Number two, we all have hopes and dreams for our kids 
that are not their paths. And perhaps this is no different. Number three, education of the parents is critical. We can help them understand that they love their child and that the parent's unconditional love is critical for their child's well-being and may even be life-saving. Dr. Schumer mentioned about the risks of suicide and that it is not inevitable, but the risk is there, and it's important that parents understand that. Number four, we really need to be better educated, and we really have to do better. And he gave us several references that I'll list in the show notes. Number five, regarding treatment, it's a big area. He talked a little bit about timing and interventions, and just briefly, that prepubertal children really don't need any kind of medical treatment. There may be some hormonal pause for children who are Tanner 2 and 3 with GNRH analogs, but that many children come to care already well into puberty and that these may be kids who are candidates for hormonal therapy such as estrogen or testosterone, but it's very individualized. I think this is why it's critical that we have specialists like Dr. Schumer to refer to. For residents, students, and for practicing physicians, we need to find mentors and teachers and colleagues like Dr. Schumer. I mean, what an amazing physician. And number seven, that compassion is critical. It applies to everything we do. And in this case, it really can make a difference as to whether or not we hurt children or heal them. We need to learn, we need to listen, and we need to reassure. And that's really what pediatricians do really, really well. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. I know it was for me. I know that we are seeing lots of kids who are really questioning their gender and sexuality as well. And it is up to us to hear them. So I wish you the very best. Again, thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast and be safe and be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.